Open your Bibles to Luke 15. Good to see all of you. On Sunday mornings, we're working our way through Luke's gospel verse by verse. Find ourselves at the parable of the prodigal son. Go ahead and stand with me for the reading of God's word. We'll read verses 11 through 17 this morning. That's how far we'll make it in the parable. Verse 11, he said, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. When he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? You may be seated. Father, thank you for this wonderful parable. It's providential, I believe, to reach this discussion of such a kind father uh, that serves as a picture or type of you on Father's Day. And so I just thank you that you brought us to this text, that this son, in, in absolute rebellion against his father, could think about his father's goodness, which we know to be a picture or type of your goodness, and be drawn to repentance as a result. Feeling uh, last Sunday we talked about being prone to wander, and then this son, in his state of wandering, was still comfortable to return to his father because of his kindness. And I pray, Lord, that we would recognize that kindness on this Father's Day and the other days to follow, that we'd be made aware of your kindness and what purpose it serves in our lives, and that we would always be comfortable when we wander away from you uh, to return, and that we'd be willing to share that truth with others through the gospel. I thank you for this time, Lord. Pray that you would really take advantage of every moment to minister to your people. Use me as your vessel to do so. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of this morning's sermon is, What Leads to Repentance? What leads to repentance? Working our way through this parable pretty slowly, trying to dig out all the wonderful truths that are contained here. I know that we're all familiar with the parable, so whenever you come to something very familiar, you hope as a pastor or Bible teacher that God allows you to share something with your congregation that they have not seen before. And so we are digging out wonderful truths here that I hope you're able to bring with you. So the son leaves home, and what does he leave home with? Lots of what? But then something happened. Look at verse 14. The money started running out. When he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. And as we talked about last week, probably the first time in his life, having come from a loving, wealthy family, to be in need. So he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And so at this incredibly low point, things got so bad, he started caring for pigs. And like we also talked about last week, there could not really be a lower point in a Jewish person's life. You can imagine even the listeners in Jesus' day uh, as he preaches this parable, cringing at this discussion of this low rung that this son has reached on the ladder. There wouldn't really be a lower rung. Verse 16 he was longing to, be, and this is the new verse for this morning, he's longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. 
Now, he had hired himself out. We talked last week that this meant that he was more of a slave than anything else. It's, it, it, when you read that he hired himself out, don't look at that and say, oh, finally something good happened for him. That's not the case. He ended up being a slave. And how can you tell that he wasn't being paid much as a slave? <laughs> Whatever occupation he found himself in, it wasn't even paying him enough to be able to feed himself. <laughs> he can't afford food, and so he starts caring for these pigs and he's caring for them, and I'm not joking, and practically licking his lips because they're eating better than him. They're living better than him. That's how low of a point he's reached. Do we have anyone here who has taken care of pigs before? By a show of hands? Okay. I'm asking this direction. I saw more hands that way. Do pigs eat just about anything? I asked Katie. She used to have pigs when she was growing up, and she also affirmed that pigs do eat anything. Actually, I asked Katie. I said, do pigs eat anything? And she said, pretty much. So, wanting to be accurate in my sermon, because I do know that pastors have reputations for sharing uh, illustrations and stories that are not accurate, I spent some amount of my week, not a particularly large amount of time, but investigating what pigs do and don't eat, and I did learn that they will eat just about anything. Their diets are disgusting. (laughs) Uh, The fact that the sun, so I tell you all that because the fact that the sun could look at what the pigs were eating and want to eat it tells you how low of a point this son has reached and how badly things were going for him. The pods, I mean, basically, I guess here's a simple way to say it. He's starving. He's got to be starving to, to be uh, living worse off than the pigs. The pods that they were eating, most commentators agreed, were the wild carob. And I could give you, I don't even know if it'd be Greek or what language it would be, Latin for the name for these for these pods. I don't think it's particularly important. I can't pronounce it anyway, but everyone seems to agree they're wild carobs, which were these black bitter berries, barely nourishing, uh, uh, providing enough nourishment to keep pigs alive, say nothing about people. And this is what he is looking at wanting to eat. My understanding is these pods were virtually undigestible for humans. And so for Jews to listen to Jesus preach this parable about this Jewish son left his loving, wonderful family where he had been provided for, to find himself in this situation would be just degrading beyond belief. Notice something important at the end of the verse. It says, no one gave him anything. And so this probably means he tried to live as a beggar, but what was going on in the land at this time? There was a what? So everyone's in need. There's lots of beggars. Nobody has extra to spare, and so nobody gives him anything. And here's a question. Was it bad or good that nobody gave him anything? Hmm? It was good. It was very good that nobody gave him anything. We happen to be looking at one of the premier examples in all of Scripture of the reality that sometimes giving can be detrimental or hurtful to people. And this brings us to lesson one. (laughs) Sometimes the worst thing to do is give because it can be poor stewardship. Sometimes the worst thing to do is give because it can be poor stewardship. Of all the sermons you're going to listen to in your Christian life, you're going to hear plenty about giving, uh, and it's such a theme in Scripture that you should hear lots of sermons about giving, but it's also true that occasionally you should hear about not giving. It would be correct to say that part of being a good steward isn't just giving but knowing when not to give. Common sense tells us that we can't give to every need. Even the richest people or the wealthiest philanthropists still have a limited resource, 
uh, in their money, and they have to determine when to give and when not to give, because to give to one thing, it's opportunity cost, is to choose not to give to something else. As a pastor, there have been weeks, I think I've probably developed a more, um, I don't know if I'd say cynical view of this, but I would hope more biblical view of this since becoming a pastor, because if you ever want to receive lots of requests for money, then become a pastor. There are weeks that I've probably received more requests for money than I've received prayer requests. There are some differences in the requests, but one of the similarities is that all of them sound terrible. Whenever people come to the office for me to meet with them, or they call on the phone, um, Job sounds fortunate compared to these people. They will, they'll just tell you stories um, that make it sound like you can't even imagine a life that could have, have gone this badly. Now, I tell you that because I want to I follow it up with this. In the 12 years here, and about, uh, you know, however many years it was in California pastoring, where I didn't see as, quite as many benevolent issues because I was, I was uh, the associate pastor, but I cannot think of instances when giving financially helped spiritually. I'm not exaggerating. I cannot. Now, I'm not saying people weren't helped spiritually, but I just probably wasn't aware of it. I cannot think of one instance when I saw us give financially and it did something spiritually for those people. It either led them to attend church or better yet resulted in, in their salvation or perhaps repentance from whatever sin that they uh, had been committing that had led them to this condition. It's not to say that every time that some people are experiencing poor circumstances that it's because of sin, but I will say that frequently it is the case, uh, usually the sin of laziness that people have engaged in. <clears throat> Just to be clear, we don't give with strings attached. We've never looked for a pat on the back or any sort of repayment, but there have been times when we've given, when I've had to lament about whether the money could have been given uh, better to one of our missionaries. The next part of so I felt, in a sense, like we were being, uh, could be poor stewards. Now, the next part of lesson one, sometimes the worst thing to do is give because it can, part two, prevent shame. Part two, prevent shame. Let's just briefly talk about what shame is, biblically speaking, so we can understand why it is a good thing to experience. We live in a world that wants people to avoid any sort of shame. You can do just about anything, engage in any behavior, act however you want, and you're basically told not to be ashamed. But biblically speaking, shame is a wonderful thing to experience. Genesis 2.25, Adam and Eve were both naked and were not ashamed. And that's the opposite of how they should have felt in this condition. And I don't say that as my opinion. I say that because there are many other verses in Scripture. I'll give you just a few examples that shame is frequently accompanied with nakedness. Micah 1.11, pass on your way in nakedness and shame. Nahum 3.5, I'll make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. Revelation 3.18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. And so the point is, nakedness is typically associated with shame. We see that throughout Scripture. Yet we see the first two people who are able to be in this condition and experience no shame. And one of the really interesting things is many of those verses, and there was a handful of others I could have shared with you, uh, associating shame with nakedness, were from pagans or were about pagans. Pagans who typically are not used to experiencing shame, but even they experience shame in that condition. Now, I said all that to ask this question. 
why could Adam and Eve be in that condition and experience no shame? They had not yet developed the knowledge of good and evil. Shame can only be produced by the knowledge of doing something wrong. You can't experience shame unless you recognize you've done something wrong. And so I'll just give you a simple example. You walk in, have this ever happened to any of you before? You go into people's houses and you're walking around for some amount of time and then they kind of look at you and they say, hey, I hate to tell you this, but we always take our shoes off. And you weren't, you didn't take your shoes off. And so you didn't really feel shame until that moment, right? And why didn't you feel shame earlier? Because you didn't know you had done anything wrong. And then the moment that you recognized you did something wrong, you're ashamed. Or have you ever been with people and you started eating and then someone said what? Hey, let's pray. And your, your mouth is full of food. Now, you weren't ashamed before that, but then suddenly you feel shame because you recognize that you did something wrong. Adam and Eve hadn't yet eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They didn't have knowledge of evil, and so they didn't know there was anything wrong with what they were doing. They felt no shame. Genesis 3, 5, Satan said, God knows the day you eat of this tree, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Lots of truth mixed in with the lies that the devil spreads. It would be completely false to think that the only thing that the devil says is a lie. There's always an amount of truth that's mixed into it because a a lie with truth is always harder to discern than one that is a a lie from beginning to end. And so the devil does tell Eve an amount of truth here. Their eyes are opened. Then listen, opened, not physically, they could already see physically, but opened to the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 3, 7, their eyes are opened. That is, their awareness has increased. That's what it says in the Amplified. They knew that they were naked at that moment. And they did something about it. What do they do then? They sew these fig leaves together, right? Made themselves coverings. The NLT actually says suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. And so the tree of the knowledge of good and evil gave them the knowledge that they were wrong and then allowed them to experience shame as a result. Now, why am I talking about that associated with giving? What does this have to do with giving? When we give, it typically minimizes or even removes shame because it can communicate support for behavior or actions that people are engaging in. And so would you ever want to remove shame that God wants people to experience? No. So I'm just, I'm not saying to never give. I mean, you can listen to plenty of past sermons I've preached on on the importance of giving. I'm just saying, make sure you're prayerful and invest in amount of time to determine whether the money you're giving is actually going to help or hurt. Because if you give and it removes shame, then you're hindering people's repentance, which brings us to the next part of lesson one. Sometimes the worst thing to do is give because it can part three, hinder repentance. It can hinder repentance. I'll share a testimony that was very meaningful to Katie and I early in our marriage. We were attending a church, and this nice, uh, I think it might have been our first time, or perhaps we were just visiting, and this nice-looking young man gets up to lead music, and he does this wonderful job, and it turned out that he was also there to share his testimony, but uh, apparently was a talented uh, musician as well, and so prior to leading, to uh, giving his testimony, he plays this music and leads the church in worship. He begins his testimony, and he shared, to our surprise, that he had been addicted to drugs, 
and after numerous warnings from his parents, his parents finally had to kick him out of the house. And then he says that there was one day when he was particularly hungry, and I don't know how long he had, he had been away from home, but he thought that he would be able to go home, but not like the son in the parable of the prophet. The, the interesting thing about the son in Luke 15 who goes home is he goes home after he is repentant, right? And so this son is going to go home, and he's not repentant. He's not off drugs. He probably goes home high. And so his mother sees him, and very heartbroken, I'm assuming, tells, and this is him sharing this, his mom says, you need to leave. You need to get out of here. I'm going to call the cops on you. And he, I, I, did, did she call the cops? I can't remember that. Did she? She did call the cops. And did they come and take him away or something? So th- she did call the cops. And then the cops came, and I guess right before that, he said to her, and this is the part Katie and I uh, have not really been able to forget and have even quoted to each other at times, that he said to his mother, can I just have a taco? Because she was in the middle of making food, and she said, no, I'm not even going to give you a taco. So he tells this testimony, and his point is this. If my mother had given to me, it would have hurt me. It was me needing to reach rock bottom, and he's telling this church this, and my mother loving me enough to let me reach rock bottom that finally produced repentance in my life and helped me get my life turned around. If we give to people at the wrong time, it can shortchange that work that God wants to do in their lives. It can prevent them from experiencing the consequences of their actions that God wants them to experience in a, in a loving way. The prodigal son's misery, it can move us with sympathy, but it was his misery that was going to lead him to repent and was going to lead him back to his father. And so if well-meaning people had given to the son, then we suspect that he probably wouldn't have returned to his father, or at least not as soon as he did. Now mark your spot in Luke, because we're going to come back to it, and turn three books to the right to Romans 2. Mark your spot in Luke and turn three books to the right to Romans 2. Luke, John, Acts, Romans. So this sermon is about what produces repentance. We just discussed what frequently doesn't produce repentance. Um, Being given money or generosity or charity. So let's talk about what does produce repentance. Romans 2, we'll start at verse 1 for context. Paul says, Therefore you have no excuse... O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So Paul says that we're without excuse or we're inexcusable when we pass judgment on others, because when we pass judgment on others, we're revealing that we can look at what they're doing and see that it is what? Wrong or sin, right? So you're going to be without excuse when you do the same thing because you've already shown that you know it's wrong when you condemned someone else for doing it or judge that it was wrong in someone else's life and so simply put if you think it's wrong in someone else's life you must think that it's wrong in your own life verse two we know that the judgment of god rightly falls on those who practice such things so in other words god judges rightly which is to say he's going to punish everyone who does these things which leads to paul's question in the next verse verse three he says do you suppose O man you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself that you will escape the judgment of god let me word that again because it can sound a little a little wordy 
Paul says, Do you suppose, O man, that you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? And so he's basically saying, if you're doing the things that you recognize are wrong in other people's lives, do you think you're going to be able to escape God's judgment when you do those same things yourself? And then this is a rhetorical question. What's the answer? The answer is no, you're not going to be able to escape judgment. It's very similar to Jesus's language in Matthew 7 when he said, judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you'll be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Probably the most misunderstood verses in all of Scripture, people love to quote this, as though you can never say that anything is wrong, but that's not what Jesus was saying. He was saying that if you judge something is wrong, and you show that you know it's wrong, you need to make sure you're not doing it yourself, because you're going to be judged by the same standard that you use in other people's lives. You're going to end up with higher accountability. Now, verse 4, and we're building up just to this verse. That's why I went through these previous verses pretty quickly. At this point, all of Paul's readers are convicted. He tells them to repent, and look what he says should lead to repentance. Verse 4, do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. So you kind of picture the flow of this, hopefully. Paul is delivering this scathing criticism, and if you would have had more time or if you're familiar with the context of these verses, few places in all of Scripture can make you feel as condemned or guilty as Romans 1 through 3, right? And so after people are incredibly convicted of their sin— Paul says this to them, that they should repent and they should be brought to repentance by God's what? By his kindness. And this brings us to lesson two. Part one, God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. We're going to be talking about this for a bit. In verse three, look at the question that Paul asked. He said, do you think you will escape the judgment of God? Why do you think Paul asked his readers this? Or why might he ask us this? Is this this too vague? He's asking this because they're not presently being judged. Does that make sense? He says, do you think you're going to escape the judgment of God? And he has to ask them that because they're not presently being judged, which could lead them to believe that they're not going to be judged at all. Because they weren't presently being judged for their sin, they could be tempted to think they wouldn't be judged at all, and we can do the same thing. If you do something and you're not immediately judged for that, what is the temptation to think? It's okay. God doesn't care. This must not make him upset, or it must not make him upset enough to do anything about it, if this really did bother him what I'm doing, then I would be punished for it. But I'm not being punished, so it must not be a big deal. The truth is that God is simply being what with us? It's actually the exact opposite of the way that it looks. It looks to us like God isn't judging us because he doesn't care. The truth is that he does care and he's going to have to judge us, but he doesn't want to judge us So he's being patient with us, giving us time so that we would do what first? Repent and not have to be judged. And the exact same thing is communicated in 2 Peter 3, 9. 
The Lord is not slow in keeping His promise, as some consider slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting any to perish. And so, when, it, when Peter says that he's slow to keep his promise, it actually means his promise of judgment, because there are many scoffers in Peter's day who were denying God's justice because he hadn't judged the world yet. I mean, that's the context. Peter, starts, Peter talks before this about God judging the world through the flood, and apparently Peter, people, excuse me, in Peter's day weren't seeing another flood or any form of judgment, and so they thought, well, this must not be any big deal. And so Peter said, no, it's, it is a big deal. It is a huge deal. You're going to be judged, but God is being patient, so you have time to repent. Now, do you want to see, the reason I read that, what I believe is the best example in all of Scripture of being drawn to repentance because of the Father's kindness? Mark your spot in Romans 2 and turn back to Luke 15. We will come back to Romans 2, but let's look in Luke 15 to see what I believe is the premier example of what we just read in Romans 2 or of being drawn to repentance by God's kindness. Luke 15, verse 17. When he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. So what was it that drew this son to repentance? It was what? It was the thought of his father's kindness. And it is a picture to us of God's kindness that would also lead us to repentance, because as we've talked before as last week and over the other sermons in this chapter this wandering or backsliding son is a picture or type of us being prone to wander or backslide in our relationships with our heavenly father and this father of the prodigal son picturing or serving as a type of god the father his kindness should be what leads us to repentance in our lives as well and why is this why is this so important to understand why why must we be confident in God's kindness when it comes to repenting? Why must we be confident in God's kindness toward us when we're convicted and thinking about repenting? Because what is the temptation to think? God won't what? He won't forgive me. God is too angry with me. He is done with me. He could never want another relationship with me after everything I have done. There is no possible way that God could ever love me again. I have had conversations with people who have looked at me when I have shared the gospel with them, and I'm not the, I'm not the evangelist that I should be, but I've shared the gospel with people, and I've had them look at me and say, you just don't understand what I have done. That is why you're convinced God would forgive me, but if you had greater familiarity with my past, you would know that there is no way that God would want a relationship with someone like me. People have these questions, and they end up concluding, I have been too bad, and the only thing that is going to combat that belief is not minimizing the, pe here, it's not minimizing the people's sins. When people tell you, I have been so bad, 
that God would never forgive me or want a relationship with me? Do you look at them and say, no, you haven't been bad? <laughs> is that the response? Do you minimize their sin and say, no, your sin hasn't been that bad? That's not what you do. What you have to do instead of minimizing their sin is exalting or maximizing God's grace, God's kindness. It is thinking about God's kindness that gives us the confidence that we can repent and he will forgive us. Last Sunday's sermon, prone to wandering from God the Father, and it is our confidence in God the Father's kindness that convinces us we can return from wandering. Now, providentially, earlier this month, uh, on June 8th, I received an email from someone, not someone I know, uh, when, never met before, don't know where the person lives, I don't know anything more than the contents of this email, and I'm going to read part of it to you. This gentleman says, Good evening, Pastor. I am asking for prayers for myself. I am 60 years old. I spent my entire life believing in God, but not living a life that glorified Him. I have been married a second time for 25 years after destroying my first marriage. No worse sinner I knew than myself. I lied, cheated, drank, and used drugs. I have surrendered myself to Jesus and accepted Him as my personal Savior. I've confessed everything that I can to God and asked for His forgiveness. I'm on my knees praying. I don't want anything. In other words, I'm not on my knees praying for anything for myself. He says, that's not what I pray for. I want God's forgiveness and a personal relationship with His Son, Jesus Christ. I know that my salvation is only by God's mercy and grace and that my sins were covered by Jesus dying on the cross. I mean, this sounds great up to this point, doesn't it? I'm almost wondering why this guy's emailing me. And here it is. But I worry. With such a wretched past, is this too much to forgive? That's exactly what this man wrote to me. Thank you for listening. Now, at this point, a man in this condition, with these thoughts about God and himself, what does he need to hear about? Does he need to hear about God's wrath? He needs to hear about God's kindness. It is hearing about God's kindness and Christ's sacrifice for him that can convince him he can repent and be forgiven for what he's done. Now, let me be clear about something. The, the longer I preach, the, the more sermons I prepare, the more time I spend in God's Word, the more convinced I become that the Christian life is largely a pursuit of avoiding ditches. <laughs> And, and the strong tendency for us to find ourselves in one or the other, and that when we strive to avoid one, we often overcorrect and find ourselves in the, on the other side of the road in another ditch, and we can find ourselves in a ditch regarding this topic. We start talking about God's kindness, and we end up in a ditch that forgets God's wrath. We're talking about God's love and His mercy and His forgiveness, which is so incredible. We're just like basking in God's goodness to the exclusion of His anger and justice and holiness. And when we have one of those ditches without the other, what do we actually have? Does anyone know? We have an idol. When you have a God whose love, mercy, grace, forgiveness, without justice, holiness, wrath, or anger— you don't have the God of the Bible. You have an idol. And if you, but similarly, if you have a God of wrath, justice, holiness, severity, without, you know, we're supposed to consider the Romans eleven twenty two. consider the goodness and the severity. If you have the severity without the goodness, 
you again have an idol. And so we don't want to swing the pendulum and find ourselves in one of these ditches because sometimes you meet people who don't sound like the man who emailed me. They're not broken over their sin. They are comfortable in their sin. Do they need to hear about God's kindness? A kindness that could cause them to be even more comfortable in their sin. They need to hear about what? Wrath, anger, justice, and this brings us to the second part of lesson two. God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance, part two, and so is his wrath. And so is his wrath. Listen to this verse, which strikes the balance for us on dealing with people. Jude one twenty two, Have mercy on those who doubt. Doubt what? Doubt God's kindness or doubt God's forgiveness. And on those people, you must show mercy and tell them about God's mercy. Does anyone know what the next verse is about? That's Jude one twenty two. Listen to Jude one twenty three. You need to save others by doing what with them? Snatching them out of the fire. Well, what does that mean? These are people who are on their way to hell. And right before they experience the flames, you need to snatch them out. Now, what would allow people to be on their way to hell? These are unrepentant people. These are people in unrepentant habitual sin. And do they need to hear about God's kindness? They need to hear about God's justice. They need to hear. So when you're told to snatch them right before they reach the flames of hell, that's where you go in preaching God's justice and wrath to them that will hopefully produce a fear that will lead to repentance. With this in mind, look back at Romans 2. We won't turn back to Luke 15. Look at Romans 2. We'll back up to verse 4 for context. Paul says, Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and his forbearance and his patience, not knowing that it's God's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance? And so Paul says this, and so what are you about to do right here? You're reading, Paul's preaching to you, and you're about to be in this ditch, right? What does Paul do in verse 5? He puts you right back in the middle of the road. Look at verse 5. Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Man, that was a swing, wasn't it? God, Paul had you right over here just loving God's kindness and mercy. And then really quickly, before you're about to find yourself in that ditch, he just swings you right back to the middle of the road and starts talking to you about God's wrath. And he even says that you can be doing what with God's wrath if you're unrepentant? It doesn't stay the same. Have you ever thought of that? God's wrath does not stay the same against you when you're unrepentant because you're continuing in sin, which means what is also happening with God's wrath? It is building up. Paul says they are storing up God's wrath against them for the day of judgment. Why is that? Because they're showing contempt. Verse 4, the context says they're showing contempt or presuming on God's kindness and forbearance, and he's going to judge them for that. 
I've been talking about others in our evangelism or outreach, but this has considerable application for us too. Because if you sin or you ever start to question God's forgiveness when you're genuinely repentant, what do you need to think about or focus on in those moments? His kindness. What Christ did for you. You need to go to what places in Scripture? The Ninevites. Look at the forgiveness for these wicked people. Go to, I think it's 2 Chronicles 33. Go read about God forgiving Manasseh when he humbled himself. Read about the thief on the cross. Read about the prodigal son who returns and is welcomed so lovingly by his father. But what if that's not where you're at with your sin? What if instead you've been engaging in sin for some period of time and your heart has become harder and you're further from repentance? What do you need to read about to wake yourself up from your spiritual slumber? God's wrath. Go read about the lake of fire. Go read about Sodom and Gomorrah. Go read Genesis 6 about the flood. Go read some of Jesus' parables dealing with hell and weeping and gnashing of teeth so that you can be sobered to the reality of your sin and God's judgment against it. Now, I want to close by showing you some verses in Psalm 73 that tie all this together. So if you, can, you don't have to mark Romans. We'll conclude here in Psalms. So turn to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, toward the middle of your Bibles, before the prophets. first poetical book, Psalm 73. We'll go through these verses pretty quickly. Jake preached on them a few years ago and did a great job. Okay, Psalm 73. Look at verse 1. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So what does the psalmist know about God? This isn't a trick question. Based on this verse, what does the psalmist know about God? That he's good. But guess what the psalmist is actually having trouble believing? That God is good. Look at verse 2. As for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. This is serious. He's talking about in his relationship with the Lord, something had been so bothersome to him that he began to, spiritually speaking, stumble in his re- or fall or trip in his relationship with God. And what was it? What was it that was causing him to stumble? Look at verse 3. I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And maybe you can relate to this. You know what's kind of interesting, and I think I've said this before, but it probably bears saying again. There is this very common criticism that generally from the unbelieving world that the God of the Old Testament in particular is terrible and cruel and severe. Those people clearly did not live in the Old Testament because the common criticism from people in the Old Testament was that God was what? Too patient, too merciful. Why are you not judging? Why do the wicked get to prosper? Why do they get away with this? Why don't you do anything about it? Read the beginning of Habakkuk. That's what he says. He says, how can you look on this wickedness and be just and not do anything about it? I mean, that was Job's argument to his friends. Job's friends said, you are suffering because you're so wicked. And Job said, that cannot be true because there are lots of wicked people who are not suffering. 
And so it is a very ignorant statement that people make. God was incredibly merciful and patient in the Old Testament, just like he is today because his nature doesn't change. So he says, I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. And here's the question, because this ties into what we've been discussing. Why were the wicked prospering? Or another way to say it is, why weren't the wicked being judged? Because of Romans 2, 4, that God is being kind to them so that they have time to repent. In fact, if you write in your Bibles, I'll give you something to circle now and something to circle in a, again in a moment. You can circle prosperity of the wicked and write Romans 2, 4. Circle prosperity of the wicked, draw a little line, and write Romans 2, 4, which says God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. So you can understand why the wicked prosper. The wicked are never prospering because God approves of their wickedness. The wicked are never prospering because God is blessing their behavior. They're prospering because God is giving them time to repent and he hasn't judged them yet. The psalmist reaches the point, he finally says that he's been good for no reason at all. Look at verse 13. He says, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in in innocence. What does he say here in verse 13? I have been good for what? Nothing. Why have I been trying to live righteously if I can live wickedly and live even better? Why wash my hands or be clean or innocent before the Lord? He's clearly not in a very good place right now, is he? Look at verse 16. He says, when I, you can sense the trouble he's in, the turmoil mentally and spiritually. When I thought about how to understand this, it just seemed to me a wearisome task. Or in other words, it's just exhausting. I can't even handle it anymore. The more that I consider it, the more exhausted I, I am becoming as I wonder why the wicked get to prosper like this. And then the psalmist has one of the most beautiful and dramatic transformations in his thinking in all of scripture i don't know that there are many places in the entire bible that rival the transformation and thinking that the psalmist has right here look in verse 17 until i went into the sanctuary of god and then i discerned their end what does that mean then i discerned their end then he finally considered what the judgment and wrath that awaited these individuals and he no longer envied them when he recognized what was in store for the wicked he no longer struggled in his relationship with the lord and he no longer envied the wicked and here you can circle the words discerned their end and draw a line and write romans 2 5 when it says discerned their end this is the language of romans 2 5 that god's wrath has been stored up against them and it's going to be unleashed on them and i get it you can look and we're all upset about the things that we see in this world the behaviors of certain people the the blasphemy the the outright rebellion against god and you can be like the psalmist and even if you don't envy them at least sit back and wonder why they're not being judged and i'll tell you this and hear me when I say this, just give me your attention. If you had one glimpse into the eternity that awaits them, you would feel nothing but pity. To have one glimpse into the reality of hell and its suffering, 
I think would cause us to have incredible pity for even the worst person that we can imagine. And that's what he said here. He said, I discerned their end. I got some glimpse when I went into the sanctuary of what awaited them, and I could no longer envy them. He didn't say he pitied them, but I suspect that that's what would be in our hearts if we could see what even a moment in hell would be like for these people who live in rebellion to Christ. He even goes on to repent himself of what he thought. Look at verse 22. He says, I was brutish, I was ignorant, I was like a beast toward you. He says that to God. He repents of what was in his heart and how ignorant and foolish he had been, like an animal that can't think. That's what he means by brutish. So here's what's interesting. It was actually his thinking about God's wrath against the wicked that caused him to repent, just like thinking about God's kindness should cause us to repent. Now, here's the rest of the story with a man that had emailed me. So I wrote back to this gentleman, and I said, it's not that your sins have not been severe. They have been terrible, just as my sins have been terrible. But Jesus's sacrifice is greater than your sins and mine. It seems to me that you are not thinking highly enough of what Christ did for you on the cross. There's no point at which I ever minimized his sins or told him it was okay or made him feel like it wasn't as bad as he thought. I hope that doesn't sound harsh, but if you think your sins can't be forgiven, then you don't think highly enough of what Jesus did for you. And he responded and he said, thank you, pastor. That's what I needed to hear. I will continue forward receiving God's grace and forgiveness more than asking for it. What Jesus did for me and all of us, and I, this is why I want to read this. I appreciate what he said here. He said, it really is the greatest gift and is where my faith should be. And so finally, he was able to lift his eyes heavenly, thinking about what Christ had done for him and, and have some peace. At least I hope that was the case for him. Hopefully, we can repent and receive God's grace and forgiveness like this man did, and appreciate Jesus's gift as the greatest, or sacrifice as the great gift that it is. And I want to conclude with this. God is patient, but he's also wrathful. If we repent, then God's wrath is turned away from us. If we don't repent, then his wrath is stored up against us and remains on us. John three thirty six. whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life but the wrath of God remains on him. After service, after the baptisms, I'll be up front, and it would be a privilege if I could speak with you, answer any questions, or pray with you. Father, I thank you for your kindness toward us. We thank you for your son's sacrifice, and hopefully as we reflect on that kindness that has been shown, it would draw us to repentance. If that wouldn't work in our lives, Lord, then we pray that it would be your wrath that would draw us to repentance. But either way, Lord, we, help, we ask that you would help us to recognize the seriousness of our sin and turn from it toward Christ, which is what repentance is. Bring to mind whatever we need at that moment, whether it's your kindness, and we probably all go through different seasons of life where we should focus more on your kindness, other times where we should focus more on your wrath, Lord. But help us to find ourselves not in either of those ditches, but walking down that road that can fully embrace your character thankful for all you've done for us, Lord, and who you are. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.